Friends, do you like to be embarrassed? There's not a single human being that would sort of look back and answer that question as if, oh, yeah, I love embarrassing stories about myself. Reality is we all have embarrassing stories of ourselves. And sometimes we may get to the point where we look back and laugh at some of the most embarrassing stories about, about ourselves. But reality is when we, when we are about to experience an embarrassing moment, we try to do anything possible, everything possible to, to escape it or to cover it up because we cannot stand the picture that our dignity would be brought to, to be scorned or laughed at or somehow embarrassed or, or, or feel the shame uh, in a way that others would look down upon us. We can't stand those experiences. We would do anything possible to avoid that. Friends, this morning, the passage we are to look at speaks about the journey from shame to glory. But before we can talk about the journey from shame to glory, we actually are going to talk about a journey from glory to shame. Because the God who made us is committed to bring all human glory low and to bring it to utter shame so that out of that rubble, he can have some good material to start working again and bring about his glory in ways that will never bring credit to ourselves. Well, this morning, we want to look at Isaiah chapters 2, chapters 3, and chapters 4. Three chapters in the book of Isaiah as we are looking at supreme worship from shame to glory. If you, are, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 567. As you open your Bibles to this passage, and I encourage you to do so, it'll be a long passage. We'll read it all, and I'll preach on all of it this morning. Um, but as, we, as you open the Bible, we are working our way through the book of Isaiah. We just started two weeks ago, um, and we are making our way through this wonderful book that speaks about the, the human condition uh, of rebellion and that of a God who is willing and able to deal with our rebellion, both in a way that brings us to shame, but also can bring his remnant to glory. This morning we're looking at Isaiah chapter 1. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes, for many peoples, 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from, the, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and peoples shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. 
And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them, and they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors. And women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, twinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of, a, instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty shall sit on the ground, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. 
in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivals of Israel. And who, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray. Speak to us. Words about your glory. Speak to us about the shame that we deserve. Speak to us about the glory that you will one day bring about once again among your people. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that would humble us. And then in a way that would Show us the way to your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Friends, the reason why we are looking this morning at such a long text is because it's one large unit. Notice that this passage is book-ended with two pictures of glory. One, the first, on the first end is the, the glory and worship of God who will be worshipped by all nations. But the reality is that when Isaiah wrote this letter, this book, the situation was different with Israel. Not only did not the nations seek after God to worship him, but not even Israel sought after God to worship him. While a large part of the book of Isaiah presents the story of Israel's rebellion, this text takes us into the future to show us who it is that Israel has rebelled against. They are rebelling against a God who will be supremely worshipped by all nations. But this text ends in chapter 4 with another glorious picture of a glorious branch and a glorious presence of God with his people after God has cleansed them of their sin. And in between these bookends of glory... Isaiah takes us to see the picture of reality, the present rebellion of God's people. But in this chapter, in this passage, in these chapters, we are presented with the root of their rebellion. The root of their rebellion is pride. Pride. And God here promises to bring down all that is haughty and proud. He will bring it all to utter shame. If we were to summarize this entire 
uh, text and, and, and the sermon today, in one sentence, it would be this. The God who will be supremely worshipped by all nations will shame all pride in order to prepare his people for his glorious presence among them. The God who will be supremely worshipped by all nations will shame all pride in order to prepare his people for his glorious presence among them. Here's three points that I'd love for us to look at this morning about what God will do um, both eternally, universally, but also in his people. First, that God will be supremely worshipped. God will be supremely worshipped. The prophet Isaiah often speaks in pictures. And we must get used to that when we are going through Isaiah. The, the picture we have here, the first picture in our passage, is this picture of a mountain. The vision of a mountain. The mountain of the house of the Lord. Now please don't think here about physical mountains. This is not about the height of, of the actual mount on, on which the, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem was built. This is not about the physical height. Mountains in ancient world were considered the meeting point between heaven and earth. In ancient religions, often, uh, the higher the mountain, the higher the worship experience was considered to be. So oftentimes, worshipers would boast and would compete, not with the size of their churches, like we do today. The way they would boast would be by high, how high they were when they went to bring an, a worship to, go, to their God. Now imagine in that kind of culture, in that kind of an ancient uh, perspective, Isaiah says, in the latter days, the, the, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be exalted among all and be established as the highest of the mountains. In other words, there will be no higher worship than the worship of God. That's the picture. That's what it means. Isaiah sees this vision of the mountain, the house of the Lord, and that God will be worshipped above all other gods. There will be no other higher worship than the worship of the God who is revealed in the Bible. In verse 2, we see something more. That this worship of God, which will be supreme over all other gods, will actually gather all the nations. All the nations will flow to this mountain. And it's not about a physical pilgrimage to a, a sacred holy site like people might do today. No, it's not about that kind of, of, a, of a flowing to the mount of the Lord. It's not people wanting to go to Israel before they die. That's not what it's about. Look at verse 3. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Friends, the nations will be seeking the worship of God, not simply to satisfy their curiosity, but so that God would teach them his ways, so that they would walk in his paths. That's worship. Friends, the purpose of the nations is worthy to examine for our own lives as a church. First of all, recognize that we are part of these nations right here and right now. Our very gathering this morning is a partial fulfillment that the nations will be seeking after God. 
they will gather together to hear from God so they can live in his ways. When this summer we're sending students away on a mission trip, whether they're going to Romania or going to Jordan, and they're proclaiming Christ to these various nations, and people, we pray, would respond to the gospel that they proclaim, when those people will come to the Lord and start worshiping God, they are fulfilling this image. The nations have already begun seeking the Lord, seeking his word. Friends, there's an application for us right now as well. Our purpose whenever we gather, our purpose whenever we gather is to worship God by hearing from him so that we may walk in his paths. Seeking the worship of God is not about experiencing some spiritual high or feeling good about ourselves, but it's about walking in his paths. This is worship. Worship is not what we do on on Sunday. Worship is what we do when we leave from here and continue to live our lives before him. The nations will come to the Lord because they will want to live and walk in his paths. Friends, that is what we desire to do whenever we come to gather to worship the Lord. Now, why will the the nations flow to the mountain of the Lord? Verse 4, we are told what the Lord will do. The Lord will establish peace among nations. He shall judge their disputes. They will need no more war equipment. Now, think about that for a moment, especially in our own country right now, that our administration is increasing the budget for military. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's the opposite of what God will do. There will come a time when, when God will, will make such a peace among the nations that no nation will need any war equipment. As a matter of fact, there's a, an interesting picture here. God will change their war equipment into gardening tools. Imagine the Moab. Imagine the, the nukes. Imagine the bombs being transformed into your gardening tools that you can plow your land with and just live in a place of peace where there's no threat, no war, no tension, nothing to be afraid of. And not only that, there will be no more training for war. They will not even desire to train for war. Imagine nations with no more military, no more navy, no more air force. Friends, it is clear that we're not there yet. It is clear that this picture is still a picture of the future. But this picture of universal peace can only be attained when the nations will seek the supreme worship of God. This picture of universal peace will be attained only by those who say, let us seek God so he may teach us his ways, so we may walk in his paths. Are we there yet? If we figured out a way to stop violence in the world, to put an end to war, to defund military, would that bring us peace? Not for long. And there would be no guarantee that there would be peace among us in our families. There'd be no guarantee that there would be peace among our, in us in, in our relationships. The peace that Isaiah presents is a peace that only God can establish 
as we seek Him, to worship Him supremely. In Isaiah verse 5, He gives a call to His own people, O house of Jacob, come. Let us, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Walking in the light of the Lord is a picture of living daily in His ways. Friends, this is worship. Worship is not simply about a religious service. It's not about what we do merely on Sunday. It's about a life that walks in His paths. Worship involves our own active participation of submitting ourselves joyfully out of reverence to God's ways. But the people of God in Isaiah's time have not been following God. As we have seen from earlier chapters, their worship service kept going on. They continued to gather to bring sacrifices to the Lord. But their lives showed who they truly worshipped. So now God reveals to Isaiah his response to their rebellion. The God who will be supremely worshipped by all nations, the God who will bring universal peace, he is now in the moment he has rejected his people. Look at verse 6. For you have rejected your people. And most of chapter 2 to 4 will show us God's rejection of his people. But God's rejection of his people in Isaiah is not yet final. He had a specific purpose of humbling them to bring them to see the shame of their spiritual condition. This leads us to the second major point of the passage. God will humble all forms of pride. God will humble all forms of pride. As we look at the rest of chapter 2 and 3, we'll notice two dimensions of how God will bring shame and humility. There's an immediate reality that Israel experienced during the time of Isaiah, and we are told how God will bring that utter shame upon them when the Assyrians will come and wipe the land and yet not take Israel or Judah out yet, They will just come and completely swipe it away, yet still leaving people in Israel. And then Babylon, about 100 years later, will come and actually take the people out of the land and exile them. Indeed, instead of of a belt, there will be a rope. Instead of beauty, there will be branding of the exiles. All that will happen very shortly in Israel's time. So there's an immediate reality that Israel experienced. But in this passage... We also see a universal reality, a day when God will humble all the proud, and that includes any of us and any future generations as well. So let's look at the details here. Look at the details in in chapter 2, verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Here, friends, we get a glimpse of why God will bring about a day of universal humility. It is to show us who truly is worthy of being exalted. It's not us, and it's nothing that we own or what we might pursue, but the Lord alone. His glory alone will stand. Everything else in that day will be brought low. In our own sinful hearts, this picture that God alone will be exalted may feel like a threat to some of us. 
Humanity wants to have glory in its own way, apart from the Creator who made us. We want to have significance. We want to have impact. And we know how to do it. And we have our way of getting it. And God says, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. Now from verse 12 to 16, actually all the way to, to 19, we have a description of all the things that God will humble and bring down. Look at verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. It shall be brought low. And he starts with the trees of Lebanon. Starts that goes on with the lofty mountains against every high tower and fortified wall. Friends, these are symbols of human security. God will bring them down against the ships of Tarshish. And you might wonder, God, what do you have against the ships? Well, the ships of Tarshish were the largest in the ancient world. And they were used in a very lucrative way to create wealth and prosperity. And people prided themselves in that and sought that. And once that happened, they, they found even more trust and reliance upon that. So God says, I will destroy the very vehicles by which you become rich and prosperous to take away your means of, of building yourself up. By describing these things, God is saying that he is going to humble not only people who are proud, but the objects in which people have placed their confidence. If we were applying that to us today, whatever you and I find confidence in above God, whatever we pursue above Him, God will bring low. For some people, it might be the affirmation of other people. For others, it is the security of, of wealth. For others, it is the prestige of, of a, of a well-looked and well-considered career. For others, they may find identity in the, what they own or in who they are in a relationship with. Friend, I wonder, I wonder what are the things or people that you cherish as essential for your happiness? What are the things or people who, on whom you rely so much that they become part of your identity? Whatever those things are, they will be brought low to show us that God alone deserves our worship because His glory alone will stand on that day. The day of universal humility will be a day of terror. The terror of the Lord will be manifested. In verses 10 and 19, people will try to escape that terror by hiding in the, in the, in the rocks, by going in the dust and hiding from the terror of the Lord, and they won't be able to. But there's something interesting about their attempts to escape the terror of the Lord. And this is a point of this detailed description. People, in their attempt to escape the terror of the Lord, will drop their idols. Look at verse 20. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and idols of gold. Why? Because they won't be able to hide behind them. The idols will be no protection in that day of the Lord. So they're putting them away because, because they can't face the terror of the Lord with their idols. Notice what God will do to display his terror. God will not have to fight against human pride. It's not like God will have 
his army and try stand up in battle against against the the haughtiness of human pride. You know what it will take to bring this terror upon the whole earth? You know what it will take to humble everything that is haughty and proud? This passage says that the simple manifestation of the splendor of the majesty of God will be enough to bring everything low. There will be no battle in that day. The mere presence of the splendor of the majesty of God will be enough to terrify the entire earth and all those who are haughty and proud and lifted up in their own eyes. Everything. So how should we respond in light of that truth that the mere splendor of the majesty of God will terrify the earth and will bring everything low? Isaiah says in verse 22, here's here's the point, here's the application. Stop regarding man. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? The root problem of all our wickedness is that we trust in ourselves and in other people rather than trusting in God and what he says. Human pride and human arrogance is the root of all idolatry, of all evil, of all wickedness, of all disobedience. So friend, stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting that your own views are better than God's views. Stop relying on human wisdom, on human strength, on human strategy. The reason we have this warning about the coming day of the Lord is to persuade us to redirect our trust and reliance away from man, from ourselves, from one another, and redirect it back to God. Because in that day of great shame, of great terror, the Lord alone will be exalted. Now, this may sound like pie in the sky, just some religious truth, good for philosophers to consider when they have nothing better to do. But in chapter 3, Isaiah brings this very close to home. Chapter 3 are practical applications for the time of Isaiah, what God will do to actually humble his people, what God will do in the very near future to bring them to see the shame of their sin. The entire chapter 3 concludes with a picture of women who are desperate to get relief from the reproach that has been brought on them. God wants to address the pride of his people. How will he do that? How will God break the fantasy about their people's, his people's prideful condition? Look at verse 1, 2, and 3 in chapter 3. God will take away all their supply. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. But it goes on. It doesn't stop here. In verse 2, God is taking away their military power and their spiritual leaders and their men in leadership and their counselors and their magicians. Then God will overthrow, if we keep going to verse 4, God will overthrow the entire social structure. He will bring chaos to their leadership. In verse 4, I will make boys, their princes, and infants shall rule over them. This is a picture 
that God will make his people get to the place where the people who have no business ruling over them will rule over them. God is bringing chaos to their leadership and to their structures of authority. In verse 6, we get this picture that people will try to restore their chaos on their own, but to no avail. They will be choosing leaders who are not qualified for their job, and they will do so out of desperation. Look, in verse, in verse 6, in that day, all it would take for someone to be a leader will be to own a cloak. Friends, think about that. People will, will be desperate to choose anyone as long as they have a cloak. And even then, people won't respond. It won't work. Even with such sham elections, nobody will be willing to lead. In other words, when God is undoing the very structures of their society, people will try to build it up again, but it will be in vain. They simply will not be able to rebuild what God has taken away. It won't work. Why is God bringing this chaos and shame against his people? Well, look at verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled. Judah has fallen. Why? Because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The people of God, to whom God has given a picture of the future supreme worship and glory that all the nations will bring to the Lord one day, have been defying the glory of the presence of God in their midst. You say, how did they do that? I tell you how. It was not because they neglected going to church. They kept going to church. They kept having the services. That is not how they defied the glory of God among them. Go back to verse, chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. We, were, we are told what they have done to rebel against the Lord. Because they are full of things, verse 6, they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. God clearly forbid them to have that. They also yoked themselves with foreigners, and God had forbid them to do that. They also became very prosperous. In verse 17, look at, look at their description. There's no end to their treasures. How many of you would like to live in that day? Friends, this is not a sign of blessing. This is a sign of indictment. Because they have sought glory in their possessions. And they were good at it. In verse 7, the indictment is against their horses and chariots. Friends, no, no offense to, to Texans who love horses here. This is not about the horse itself. It's about that fact that horses and chariots were their military equipment. This was their military power, and God has commanded them not to have it. God commanded them not to increase their horses and chariots because he would lead Israel to rely on their own strength rather than God. But what do they do? They're at a place where the chariots are so many that they lost count of how many there are in the land. This is a sign of, God, of, of the indictment of their situation. In verse 8 we read, Their land was also filled with idols. Friends, disobedience to God's commands always goes hand in hand with attaching our hearts to other idols. Did you notice in these verses the repetition of the word fool or filled? The people of God were filled with the things that God had forbidden them. 
And by acting in such disobedience and rebellion, the people of God have defiled the glorious presence of God in their midst. I wonder, my dear friends, are there any things that we are filled with today that God has forbidden us? When the church, when the people of God are filled with immorality, And they talk about it as if it's totally okay. Rather than being that which we we must forsake. When the people of God are filled with injustice. When speaking lies, speaking untruth, goes on and it's it's not addressed. This is the common stuff we're filled with. Or when we're filled with so much blessings, material blessings, that we can't take confidence in. Remember the church in Laodicea. Who said, I, I am rich. I can see. I have need of nothing. A church that was filled with things. But it was empty of God. Because Jesus was outside the door. Knocking from the outside in. It is possible, dear friends, that the, that the church, the people of God can be filled with all kinds of things. And yet be emptied of the glory of God in their midst. In the midst of this message of shame, there's a word of hope for the righteous. Verse 10, tell the righteous. I love this verse. In the midst of the shame, tell the righteous. It shall be well with them. For they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. In other words, this message of shame is not the last word for those who seek God's righteousness. For the people who seek God. The shame that God brings is not the last word. But for the wicked, for the wicked, those who continue to live in their rebellious ways, they are given a message of woe. They will reap what they have sown. In verses 12 through 15, the attention goes back to the leaders of Israel because the leaders have misguided the people. God now stands in judgment against his people. In verse 13 and 14, We see God taking his place to judge the leaders. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. Why? Because they are responsible for where God's people have turned to. They have not rebuked God's people when they should have rebuked them. When God's people turned away to the Philistines. But the leaders of Israel kept their mouths shut. Why? Because he would bring more money. It would increase more people. It will increase the influence. We'll have a better chance to influence culture. Let's just keep it shut so we can increase our influence. And God says, I am going to judge you first. Because this is why when a church selects its spiritual leaders, it's of incredible importance. It's of incredible importance. Both for the church, but also for the people who will be selected. For the people who will be selected... Recognize this, that we will be the first ones to take the judgment of God and the accountability of God for the way we have led God's people. This is a very sacred and a very resolute, a very serious matter. It is not to be entered into lightly. And church, the people who we choose to lead us spiritually influence where we will be. 
10, 15, 20, 50 years from now on. But God has a, a word of a judgment not only against the leaders. In verses 16 to chapter 4, verse 1, we have a picture of the women of Zion. The, we have here the picture of, of how haughty they were, of how proud they were in their luxuries. We have a very detailed description, I'm not sure if you noticed, of their closets. Have you ever wondered why is it that we have so many descriptions of their closets? Well, it's because they took pride and used their, their ornaments to exhibit their pride and their haughtiness. And God wants to say, instead of all that, I'm going to bring the opposite dread. I wonder if you notice how many times there's a word instead of, instead of, instead of, instead of. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope, the rope of exile. Instead of a well-set hair, ladies, you know what, what I'm talking about? Instead of that, I think how much you care about your hair, God says, I will bring baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a beautiful skirt, there'll be a skirt of sackcloth. Utter shame. And worst of all is this picture that seven women will be willing all to marry one guy and take no supply for him. They will provide their own means just for this guy to take away their reproach. This is how pitiful the daughters of Zion will become in that day. If Israel could just see the shame of their sin, if Israel could feel the shame, but they didn't. God had to bring the Assyrians. God had to bring the Babylonians. Because even now, they would not repent. But the story of how God brings human glory down to shame turns around at the very end of this passage. Where we see in verse 2 a contrast. The desperate attempts of the daughters of Zion to to get rid of their shame, to get rid of their approach, in contrast with a totally different picture in verse 2, in that day. We've seen that word before. So far, this word, in that day, was all used for the day when God will bring shame and reproach against his people. But now, this phrase is used in a different purpose. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Oh, dear friends, God, and this is the third point, God will make his remnant glorious again. God will make his remnant glorious again. We have here four images. The image of a branch, the branch of the Lord, uh, which will be beautiful and glorious and fruitful, and, and the land will be fruitful because of it. Uh, this is possibly a reference to the Messiah. The picture of a branch of the Lord oftentimes is referenced to speak about the coming Messiah. Or this could just be an image of the, of the vegetation that will spur up again. Instead of desolation, instead of famine, God will now re reinvigor, bring life to his garden, to his land, and people, and the land will be so fruitful that people will take pride in it again. 
but it will be, they will take pride in that which the Lord has restored for them, not that which they have tried to earn on their own. Even through that sorrowful and painful experience, this picture of, a, of the branch of the Lord that is beautiful and glorious shows us that even through shame, the plans of the Lord are not ruined. Friend, God often ruins our plans so that he can accomplish his plans in us. His plans will come to, fu- to full fruition, and he will give people another reason they can boast. They will no longer boast in what they have sought on their own ways, but in what God has restored for them. This image of the glorious branch moves on to, to give picture to the image of a remnant that will be made holy. Notice in verse 3 that not everyone will be able to boast in this redemption. Only those who have been recorded for life in Jerusalem, says verse 5. In verse 4, the survivors of this terrifying experience will be called holy again. And those who used to rebel against God, who have taken the shame, are now called holy. How? On what grounds? Verse 4, because the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst. How will the Lord do that? By a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. The people whom God makes holy don't escape the judgment of God. They go through it in a temporary way. Without God's purifying judgment, we don't lose our idols. We are left to feel no shame and no bankruptcy. Without his spirit of burning, we don't feel the worthlessness of our idolatries. Every time the Lord brings his people or any of us to him, he first takes us through this valley of the burning and spirit of judgment and spirit of, of burning. There are many people even today who would like to receive God's pardon without feeling the shame of their sin, without experiencing the worthlessness of their idols. And that kind of forgiveness, friends, is simply not the kind of forgiveness that God offers. I wonder if you realize that the good news of God's salvation first takes us through the scrutiny of his judgment and through the spirit of his burning so that we are first confronted with how utterly desperate we should feel because of our sin and because of our idolatries. Friend, don't try to escape God's spirit of judgment and burning. Let him judge you and burn from you all that is rebellion and idolatry. Through that spirit of judgment and burning, he washes away our filth. And this picture of a glorious people who becomes holy gives way to another picture, now of a mountain. Remember, we started with the mountain. Now we're back to the mountain. Verse 5, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion. Friends, this is beautiful. God is not just giving back the supply he has taken away from his people. God is actually recreating Mount Zion. A new creation. And this this picture of the Mount Zion will be recreated Gives, gives room, gives lead to the fourth picture that on this mountain, the glory of God will be once again manifested as he dwells among his people. 
In verse 5, we see these pictures of, that are taken from the, from the book of Exodus when God dwelt with his people. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud dwelling among them, the glory, the canopy that will be over the glory. Friends, we see the journey from shame back to glory. People will have glory again because the presence of God among them will be glorious. I love how one pastor said, sometimes God takes away more than we wish we would, but only to give us more of himself forever. Friend, when God replaces our arrogance and pride, when, uh, when God replaces your arrogance and pride with everything that you dread, take it as a sign that God is humbling you not to destroy you, but to bring you to the end of yourself so that you may begin to see what God wants you to become in him and through him. God brings us to shame because he wants to replace our glory with his glory. Father, help us to see and get a fresh picture of your glory again. Enable us to see the wickedness and shamefulness of our sin and rebellious ways. Purge us. Cleanse us. Bring us low, if it need be, so that in your time, you may visit us again with the glorious presence of your eternal being and glorify once again your presence among us so that we may be a beacon of glory and honor for your namesake.